everyone! Welcome back to The Spirit of Success. I'm your host, Yara, and on today's episode, we will be discussing careers related to law, global governance, and peace advocacy. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with well-known and beloved international lawyer, author, independent scholar, and founding director of the Center for Peace and Global Governance, Mrs. Soveda Maoni Ewing. Mrs. Maoni Ewing, with a career in law spanning more than 30 years, has dedicated her work to addressing and creating principled solutions to some of the world's most pressing and challenging crises and threats. She has appeared and been interviewed on various television, radio, and podcast programs in both English and Farsi. Beyond her work in law and global governance, Mrs. Maoni Ewing has also authored many books about creating a unified and better world. In 2014, Mrs. Maoni Ewing founded the Center for Peace and Global Governance, which works to address and advise on many of the global issues of today's society. Welcome, Mrs. Maoni Ewing. How are you today? Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me on your program, Spirit of Success. Well, thank you for being on the show today, and I'm super excited for our conversation. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the details of your career, we would love to know what got you interested in law, specifically international law, and global governance, and how did you get your start? Well, it started off actually when I was a kid. My, my first love was trial law. I always imagined myself as a trial lawyer standing up in court and defending the rights of the downtrodden. And that passion to, um, to uphold justice and, and see that, that uh, justice was dispensed was really what drove me into the arms of the law to begin with. Then over the years, as I was a teenager and getting into my early 20s, I became very aware that our world's becoming increasingly interconnected and interdependent, so much so that the world truly had become a global village. And uh, another way of putting it has become like a, a single organism, a, a body in which we're all interconnected. And yet it's, it was clear to me, increasingly clear, that the systems we had in place for dealing with global challenges, uh, you know, like, like uh, the, the danger of a nuclear war, which is very present when I was a youth, it was something we were all worried about. It's still a problem today, even though we don't talk about it a lot, but it's actually one of the existential challenges facing our world. Now we have climate change, we have genocide, terrorism, the pandemic is an obvious one. Uh, all of these global challenges, we didn't have structures to deal with them because we were still behaving as though we were all little units that were not um, connected with each other. And so my awareness of, of this interconnectedness was what led me to become um, more interested in international law because I was interested in looking holistically at how we could solve these global problems at a global level. And the last thing that, that drove me was uh, a deep and keen interest in, in peace and how we could achieve peace in the world. And that uh, was largely inspired by my faith, which is, happens to be the Baha'i faith. And a particular quote that I uh, always loved from the Baha'i writings that said, um, be anxiously concerned with the needs of the age you live in and center your deliberations on its exigencies and requirements. And so my marching orders in my own head were to be anxiously concerned with the needs of our time. And these global challenges were really 
uh, the biggest needs and challenges of our time. So that, that's how I got started, and that's how I got into law and then international law and the global governance and peace work that my organization does. How wonderful. Thank you for sharing with us. Yeah. And you mentioned this a little bit, what inspired you to be a lawyer, but how have your values impacted and influenced your approach to law? And what unique perspectives do these bring to your practice of international law? So values have been front and center in my work, um, especially the understanding of really the oneness of, of human beings and the oneness of nations. I really uh, fundamentally believe that if we want to guarantee the advantage or the welfare of the part in this world, so by the part, I mean a nation. So if a nation wants to guarantee um, the welfare and success of its people, or if a group or an ethnic group or anybody at any level, if we want to guarantee our own welfare as individuals, the only way we can do it is by guaranteeing the welfare of the whole. So in terms of a nation, we need to look at what is in the interest of the whole world, all the nations of the world. If I'm an individual, I need to be thinking in terms of the welfare of my community, my neighborhood, my city, my region, my country, and the world. Why? It comes back to what I articulated uh, in response to your first question, this idea that we really have become parts of a human body. I, I want to share with you an example that I love to use. It's, it's not an example I came up with. It's a wonderful gentleman by the name of Kishore Makhubani, who's a Singaporean diplomat, came up with this wonderful notion that I use constantly in my global governance work. He says, the world used to be comprised of 193 little boats bobbing on the sea of international life. And our concern was just to make sure that these boats didn't collide with each other. He says, now, because the world has become so interconnected, we are no longer 193 little boats. We've become a single ship with 193 cabins. And he said, while the internal affairs of each cabin are very well run, unfortunately, the ship as a whole lacks a captain and crew. So that means that when you get into stormy and turbulent seas, there's nobody at the helm actually guiding the ship. That's exactly what we're experiencing right now in the pandemic, right? We have this global challenge and it's clear that there is nobody at the helm of this ship at the international level to coordinate activities between nations. We're now being told that if, if we vaccinate everyone in the developed world but fail to vaccinate people in the developing world, we will suffer as much economically in the developed world as the developing world would. So we're no longer in a situation where we say, oh, well, let's take care of ourselves first and then you know, let them take care of themselves. We really are that ship. We sink or swim together. So values have been front and center. Um, what unique perspectives have they afforded me? So the unique perspectives are exactly what I articulated, that we are one. But I have to tell you and tell your audience that these unique perspectives have not always been welcomed or appreciated in the various workplaces that, that I've been engaged in. And the irony is, even though they were not appreciated, why? Because very often, like my bosses or the people I worked with thought I was too idealistic. To me, this was the reality. This is a reality that they were sticking their heads in the sand about and refusing to actually acknowledge. In their minds, I was being idealistic. When I look at systems unraveling in the world today, I figure, you know what? 
this is proof positive that our systems are not working, that our systems are bankrupt. And we need to acknowledge the reality of our oneness. While it was not appreciated, the good news that I also want to tell your audience is I didn't give up. And it, this, these very perspectives also became the magnet that drew people to me. So on the one hand, people told me, ah, oh, you know, give it up. This is, you know, you're being too idealistic. On the, on the other hand, those very same people always felt attracted because they so wanted to believe, they so wanted to aspire to a, a greater vision of what humanity could be and what our own um, uh, profession could be like. So that, that's really the impact. Well, that's amazing. And thank you for sharing that example that I think is a really wonderful way to view how the world is integrated and also how its integration means that we have to come together and actually work together. And what you shared about them not always being welcomed in your in your career and by people who may think it's too idealistic, that shows a wonderful point of we have to keep persevering. From this work that you've been doing, and as we mentioned in the beginning of the show, you founded and direct the Center for Peace and Global Governance, which works to pool and propose innovative and principled solutions to some of the world's most complex and present issues, such as climate change, genocide, arms control, nuclear proliferation, terrorism, and the equitable distribution of energy, food, and water. Can you please tell us about what inspired you to create this organization and a bit more about the work that your group does? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I love to share this um, with folks who ask, and I thank you for asking me this. So I was inspired by my experience in the State Department. So for the first segment of my life, I worked in, in the private sector. So I worked for uh, law firms. I, I qualified as a barrister at law in England and Wales, and then I came to the United States 34 years ago and qualified as an attorney in, in, in Washington, D.C. and Maryland as well. And I started my life as a, as a young lawyer, essentially working for these private sector law firms in, in various fields. Uh, and, I, and I jumped around a little because I kept looking for, for the sweet spot <laughs> for me. It took me a while to hit it. Um, at some point, I decided to drop uh, the private sector. And uh, at that point, I had a, a thriving practice that I was heading at a law firm. Um, and I gave it up to go to the State Department to work in the legal advisor's office because my first love, as I told you, was had been international law. And that's what I studied at the master's degree level. And I wanted to have a chance to actually get into it and practice international law, which is very hard to practice. Um, public international law, the law of nations, is very hard to practice. State Department's one of the best places to do it. So I spent a few years at the State Department and the thing I noticed is that, so several things I noticed that really struck me were that we were so busy putting out fires. So there are crises that happen around the world all the time. In the State Department, the Legal Advisor's Office advises the government on the legal implications of its foreign policy decisions. And I noticed that because there were so many fires, we were so busy trying to just put out the flames of the fire, but not really tackle the root causes, not really get at the root cause. So the embers would be left. And when the next winds blew, those embers would blow up into the next crisis. So we'd never actually solve a crisis. We were always thinking short-term, like how can I put the fire out now as opposed to long-term? So we weren't being proactive, thinking ahead, thinking about how to 
uh, for small crises, but also solve them at root. So we were being reactive versus proactive. And we had what I uh, like to call a, a cut and paste approach to crises. So, um, you know, we'd look to see, has this happened before? What did we do then? Kind of tweak it a little bit, modify it and apply it to the current crisis, even though the former solutions hadn't necessarily worked very well. And I realized that people didn't really have the time and the luxury to sit down and do a lot of pro proactive thinking. Um, and the other thing I noticed was that um, expediency, so short-term, short-termism, in other words, short-term gains were the order of the day, rather than identifying the principles involved that we could all agree on as a, a group of nations or within our own uh, nation between the agencies, governmental agencies, and then apply those principles systematically and methodically to solving problems. So I, re I decided, you know what, maybe that's a contribution I can make. It can be a drop in the bucket. Um, so I left the State Department in order to start my work and to start doing the research and thinking and the writing. And that's when I started writing my books, um, you know, starting with the first one in 2008. So that was the inspiration. Um, and what does the group do, I think was your second question. So the CPTG, the Center for Peace and Global Governance, that's all it does is it proposes um, practical, politically palatable solutions to current global challenges. Like these are the big crises that could wipe us out, like climate change, like global pandemics, like a nuclear holocaust, uh, like terrorism. Um, and, and also things like a, a global financial crisis that can really decimate the world. So um, that's fundamentally what we do. Um, and we do it in various, we use different lines of action. So we, we publish books, we host workshops, we have webinars, we have uh, we're in the process of creating an online course to go with the latest book that's just come out in January, The Alchemy of Peace. Um, and there are podcasts and we have a weekly video cast. So just, we're trying to reach people every which way uh, that we can. How amazing. And stay tuned till the end of the show where you guys can hear where you can get more involved with CPGG and where you guys can find all these different projects that they're working on and how you can get involved. So stay tuned. But we've talked a little bit about the inspiration behind your work and how this approach is something that is really in this day and age something unique to addressing these problems. Um, and you even mentioned and shared with us a little bit about some of the hardships that have come with trying to promote these ideas and these approaches. So in that line of thinking, what does success mean to you and how has your definition of success evolved throughout your life and career? Uh -huh. So I love that. So success to me means essentially the following. Um, I believe that we're each born with certain unique talents and abilities. So identifying what our unique talents and abilities are is critical. So I would say to your audience, especially the young folks out there, it's before you jump into thinking about what my career should be, first really spend time reflecting, consulting with those who know you best, ask them what they see in you 
Identify what your unique abilities and talents are. What are your strengths? The second component after that is, I believe we're put on this earth in order to, to contribute value to society, to be of service. That's another way of putting it. So success to me is when I, as an individual, am able to take my unique abilities and strengths and talents and, and find a, a, a way to utilize them in service to humanity. It could be service to one individual, could be service to a group of individuals, it could be to a nation, to a city, to the world. It doesn't matter. The number of people doesn't matter. It is the fact that you are um, conducing to the welfare and happiness of another human being. That's the key. And working progressively towards the realization of this goal is to me the definition of success. So the progressive realization of this goal, that, which is service to humanity, utilizing our God-given unique abilities and strengths. That to me is success. Now, how has my idea of success evolved over the years? First of all, again, I consider myself very lucky because I think my faith grounded me very early on in my life um, and, and, and gave me the pointers that, that, that led me in the direction of this definition uh, that I've given you. However, having said that, I must also confess that for the first, I mean, I'm a human being like everybody else and prone to fallacies and, and, and erroneous thinking. And we evolve over time. So one of the traps I did fall into for a while, in addition to having these wonderful views of service, I also wrestled with the fact that my identity for many years was that of lawyer, right? Lawyer, international lawyer, works for, you know, I either headed up a group at a law firm or I was, or I had my own law firm for a while or I worked at the State Department. Um, what, what made me realize that I needed to detach myself from this identity, that my identity was not lawyer. That's not what makes me unique. What makes me unique are a whole bunch of qualities and strengths I have. How did I learn this? The very hard way was when I got married uh, late in life and uh, gave birth to our daughter. And uh, I had thought that, oh, you know what? After three months, I'll go back to work and I'll have somebody take care of my daughter and uh, our daughter and, um, and I'll just go back to my career. Well, I found I couldn't do that. I felt that I, this was a responsibility that I felt only I could do. I, I surprised myself. I hadn't expected I would feel this way. Um, so especially to women uh, who may be listening or young women, uh, you need to anticipate, you don't know how you're going to feel. Uh, and, and we can talk about this later. But what I realized when I decided to give up my job at the State Department in order to stay home and focus on raising our daughter initially, and also to do this um, work on global governance, that's when I started this, this started at the same time. I, I spent, I wrestled for two years with basically an identity crisis. And um, I noticed that the way people treated me changed. Um, you know, they wouldn't include me as much in conversations. Um, it, was, it was like they thought I'd become brainless because I'd become a mother, which was like the bizarre thing, including some of my own close friends, which was very shocking. 
And I realized that I needed to grow very quickly and become strong and recognize I had made a choice because I believed this is what you were talking about, the courage of having the courage of your convictions. This comes up over and over in life. I needed to have the courage of my convictions. I was the only one who had decided to give up my career um, in the form that it had been in order to raise my daughter for, for several years. And, and I knew that I was doing the right thing. I felt it, I believed it. And so I should detach myself from how other people viewed me. That was their, their challenge. That was their problem and I didn't need to make it mine. And I also had to learn that my identity wasn't, a career was not what defined me. What defined me was a whole set of abilities and talents and strengths that I could then take and apply with this newfound freedom. So I flipped the way I thought about it from, oh, I've given up something so important that defines who I am to, oh my gosh, now I have the freedom to take these same talents and strengths that have made me an excellent lawyer to date and to now apply it in a whole new field of global governance and peace and, and to really do something new. Uh, and I, I must say that is, probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life, but it didn't come with, without a lot of pain. So that's the, the answer to your question there. How beautiful, and thank you for sharing that with us. I think, like you mentioned, one of the biggest things, especially when it comes to success, and I think, especially when you think about success, is what do people think about me? Um, and that's something that hopefully we start growing away from. So having that confidence that you were talking about of doing what you know is right, even if others want to judge you for it, or others want to try to make you feel bad about it. You should have that internal confidence to know that what you're doing is correct, and you're doing it because you want to help yourself grow. And hopefully, from that, you're able to serve and make a great impact. I'd love to jump in. And, and there was something you said that, that, that I just wanted to unpack a little bit and, and say something about it, because it's one of the ways of thinking that actually can impede us doing the right thing. So one of the things that makes finding a career for many people so difficult is that they're looking for the, the right thing, quote unquote, the perfect thing. And they're terrified of making a mistake. One of the things I've learned in my several decades of existence, both in my own life and observing the lives of many whom I've known is there is no such thing as the right thing. So right thing in terms of being true to your values, yes, but there is no one right career. There is no one right path for you. Yeah. Um, there are many potential paths. And at any given moment, you can choose and decide what do I believe is the right fit for me now and brings me joy and enables me to be of service, utilizing always my unique abilities and talents. And that can change over a lifetime. It can change many times. So that's the beauty of it. And that is very freeing when you start to realize that there is no one, you know, uh, career is not like a train track anymore. It used to be yeah. a genera two generations ago that you got on the track, you got on the station and you rode the train all the way to the end of the track. You know, you had a career, you, you got a job with a company or a firm or, or, or something, or even a trade, you were a plumber or you were a mason or something, and you just, you were loyal and you stuck with them to the end of your life and they were loyal to you. That has completely changed. 
So during the course of our lives, we probably change careers now five, six, seven times. So we need to learn to be very agile and adept and, and, uh, and really see, constantly reassess um, where we think we can go from here. Exactly. And like you shared, I think that shows how as we make these mistakes or as we try these different things, they may not even be mistakes. You just may have a lot of different interests and throughout your life, they evolve and doors exactly. open for you to try those different things. It really shows you that if you have a goal in mind, whether it changes or it stays the same, things will fall into place as they should and as things are meant to be. So stick with it. It'll be okay. Um, so from that, specifically talking about a career in law, what considerations do you feel are over or undervalued when choosing a career in law? <sighs> so overvalued today, I think are, you know, grades, smarts, um, and, and the ability to, to do well under stress. That's something that people look for. But look, there, the truth is that there are a lot of very, very, very smart lawyers out there in the world. Actually, there are a lot of smart everythings out there in the world. But unfortunately, many of them are, don't have a heart. <laughs> They're not driven by ethics. Uh, they can't distinguish between right and wrong. Um, they're not really out to be of service necessary to their clients. They're driven by material considerations, money, status, prestige, influence. So those things are definitely overrated. And underrated definitely uh, is uh, values and certain qualities like honesty, like compassion, like service. Uh, like the ability to listen. So we usually, uh, when we look for strong lawyers, we tend to look for people with charisma, which I think is overrated, and people who can speak well. Speaking is important. I mean, you have to, especially if you're a litigator, you have to be able to persuade um, a court uh, of, you know, of your arguments. It's also important if you're advising clients in a corporate setting. Um, you have to be able to articulate uh, your ideas. Communication skills are important. But um, it, to me, it's far more important to have these other qualities, or it's at the very least as important to have these qualities of compassion, of being able to listen, of humility, of honesty, and, uh, and, and wanting to be of service not putting your own self-interest first. Wonderful. Those are all great considerations. Um, so going to a point that we've discussed and we've kind of touched on throughout the show is the ever-increasing recognition that the world really is one interconnected place. So from that, and along with this realization, um, has come the more present desire to try to create a more united world. What suggestions do you have for what we can all do to help make this a reality? Okay, so clearly creating a united world when you think about it sounds like a tall order. However, I have, I'm, I'm a, an optimist at heart and I think it starts precisely with the kinds of conversations that you and I are having, right? Well, 
we, the first step to me is raising awareness and consciousness about the fact that um, we need unity. And secondly, to convince people that it's possible, that it's not a pipe dream, um, that we need to create peace in our world and that that is not a pipe dream, that we need to create justice in our world and that's not a pipe dream because peace is based on the foundations of justice and peace and justice are foundations upon which we build unity. It was actually the reason why I wrote my latest book that just came out in January of this year called The Alchemy of Peace. Um, and the, the, the subtitle actually gives the clue, six essential shifts and mindsets and habits to achieve world peace. I think we start by changing the way, the, the, the lens through which we interpret what's going on in our world around us. Uh, we do this through having these conversations and dialogues, having consultations with each other at the grassroots level, in our neighborhoods, amongst our families, at the water cooler once the pandemic's over, at the office, uh, at cafes, on the hundreds of Zoom meetings that we're all on, in our classes if you're a student at school, in our seminars, our discussion groups, the papers we write, we need to start engaging. Why is it important to change mindset? Because by changing mindset, you change culture, you change societal culture at the grassroots, locally, nationally, and internationally. Once you've changed culture, then a couple of things happen that I think are the two next steps. When we realize what our world is capable of, we have a vision of where we want to go, and what we need to get there, we will start electing leaders that are fit and worthy to get us there. And then the last thing that happens is, is, is other habits. So shift your mindset leads to a shift in habits from dysfunctional habits to more functional and empowering ones. So the beginning is start having conversations with your friends. You may think that it's not important. If you have a blog, you know, start writing a, a, a blog post, get out, to, even if you get out to 20 people, just think if every person were to reach 20 people or 50 people or 100 people, this message would very soon spread. So that is, uh, that's what I recommend. That's where we start and, and be positive. And as you said before, never give up. These are great steps for us to all take into consideration and really start making this dream of ours and this desire a reality. And it's something that we can do. It is realistic, but as I think we hear pretty often, but it is very true, that change starts with us and it starts at our community levels. If we can't become unified at the community level and change our mindset to believe that this is a reality and develop that resilience to make this a reality, we will not be able to do it on the larger scale. So on your podcast series, Reimagining Our World, you discuss ideas and concepts related to creating and moving towards a more unified, equitable, and interconnected world, kind of like we're discussing right now. What is your vision of what would constitute globally encompassing policy-making guidelines that promote the well-being of all over the promotion of individual interests and profit? I'm not as interested in creating global policy guidelines. My goal with, with uh, reimagining our world, this weekly uh, podcast, is to, actually the main goal is to infuse hope in 
you and me and the others I reach out to, that we can live in a better world, that it's possible. But we have to start. So there are three steps that I think we need to go through. And it, these are the three steps that, that my podcast revolves around. The first step is we need to have a vision of where we want to be, right? If you don't have a vision of where you want to end up, you're going to flail about and, and go off in a hundred different directions and not get anywhere. So creating an uplifting and a compelling vision of the kind of future and the kind of world we want to live in is the first. It's something that if you look around you is actually quite absent. If you look at what the media does, they talk about all the problems we have, but we never come away or I hardly ever do from a media show thinking, wow, they've just painted a vision of the future that I am really interested in working towards, right? So we're not doing that. And, and, and so I also, one of the hats I wear in life is I have a coaching practice, a life coaching practice. And when I work with individual clients and the same applies at the collective level, you have to first create, help the person create a vision of where they want to be, of who they could be. What kind of person could I be? What could I be doing? So creating vision is the first step. The second step is to acknowledge and accept where we are and to accept responsibility for why we're here. And the responsibility lies firmly and squarely with us. We tend to want to assign blame to others. We blame in society groups of people. It's the fault of the whites or the middle-aged white men or it's the blacks or the transgender folks or it's the fault of the immigrants or you know this nation or that nation. It's always somebody's fault that the 1% who are wealthy or no, it's actually the fault of the poor. But we're not willing to say, look, we're all in this together. We all have a certain amount of responsibility because it's only when we are willing to accept the role that we have played, the choices we've taken to get to where we are, that we can say, okay, enough of that. Now I want to make different choices in order to what? to reach that vision that I've now decided I want to aim for. The third step, having um, crafted the vision, defined where we are, there's a gap between here and there. The next, the, the third step is to craft um, steps, a, a plan to get from here to there, to bridge that, that gap. That is, that's what I'm interested in doing, as opposed to coming up with policy guidelines. That's what I'm interested in doing, helping people craft a vision, a global vision, a societal vision, assessing why we are where we are, and then what do we do to bridge the gap. And again, it's the reason I wrote this latest book, because I realized that that is where we need to start. Until we do that, nothing else is going to work. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And I think even though your work isn't necessarily in the policy guideline creation, I think the steps that you just shared can be very much applied to that process of making policies. Those steps will also help us get there in terms of law, in terms of what will help us to promote the unity of all instead of the interests of one or the other, like we kind of discussed right now in your answer to that question. So thank you. And we're gonna talk a little bit more specifically about the role of youth and some advice that you have for them, especially those that want to look into careers of law, uh, global governance or advocacy. So. What do you think is the role of youth in today's society? Uh, I think that the, the hope for our world um, and the future of our world lies in the, the palms of our youth. 
uh, I, I get different reactions when I say that to, to the youth that I speak to and work with. Sometimes they say, oh, well, we're so happy that you've acknowledged it, but at the other end of the spectrum, what I get is, oh my gosh, you're putting such a huge burden on us. You guys have ruined the world. You've left it a total mess. It's all your fault. And now you're saying to us, oh, now you get to fix it. So I totally understand both reactions, um, but I still believe that, that our hope really resides in youth. Why? Youth have a whole host of amazing qualities. And we were all once youth, so we all had this at some point. Some, some have been able to hold on to these qualities better as the years have worn on and others lose them. So youth have energy. They have more time at their disposal, even though it feels like you don't with all your schoolwork. Um, idealism, and idealism in the best way. In other words, I, the willingness to be open-minded and to think outside the box. As Albert Einstein famously said, you can't solve uh, the problems, um, uh, solve the problems you have, especially global problems, using the same kind of thinking that got you into the, these problems in the first place. So you have to kind of destroy even the concept of the box. It's beyond thinking outside the box. And I think that youth are uniquely able to do this. Um, they're enthusiastic. You guys are enthusiastic. You're passionate. You bring energy. These are all incredible qualities. So I think you should be at the forefront of conceptualizing solutions, at the forefront of disseminating, of advocating. You also have another strength. One thing I've noticed, particularly about the youth of today, is that you're very collaborative. You're very used to working in groups and teams. And I think it's perhaps one of the upsides of social media. It has many downsides, but one of the upsides is that you're always in touch with each other and are able to collaborate using these amazing technological platforms. And the last amazing quality is that I find the youth of today are very inclined to be service oriented. And you really need that quality if you want to help solve the global challenges of today. Uh, you need to have that spirit of selflessness and detachment and wanting to be in service to the other. So that's, you know, that's what I think of youth, their qualities and the unique role they have to play. I mean, we just have to look at a Greta Thunberg. We're not all Greta Thunbergs, but look at what one single young person in the world has been able to do. Now imagine if, if other youth uh, rose and, and followed in her footsteps. You guys heard it here, youth have the power. And that's something that we hear a lot, especially in this day and age, and especially during these times. Um, so be the change that you wanna see and stick to it. That's, I think that's one of the greatest messages that we've been talking about throughout this episode and throughout this interview really is stick with it and you can make that difference. So what advice do you have for youth who wanna pursue careers in law, global governance, and or peace advocacy? You all know that, that law is a graduate program. So for your undergraduate, you can basically study anything you want. Sciences, um, you know, uh, arts, humanities, it really doesn't matter, follow your passion. The main thing is to have a really well-rounded uh, education and uh, to, to do something that you enjoy. And then, um, and then if you decide, go to law school. But here's where I would say before you commit to the law, 
make sure you understand what you're getting involved in. So at a practical level, I would say, uh, go and offer your time, even if it's free of charge, work inside a law firm or inside an NGO, if you wanna do policy related work or you know, you're interested in you know, saving the wildlife somewhere or, or you're into conservation, whatever it is that, 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 that you feel um, moved to, to, to participate in. So make sure exactly what the work of a lawyer uh, involves. Many people go into the law not really understanding. The law can be very boring, depending on also areas of law. So you want to really have a good understanding. Ask people, what do you do from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every night when you're at the office or sitting behind your desk? You know, walk me through a typical day. So that, that's the practical stuff. The other thing that I think is equally important is to understand before you get involved with the law, because this is where I see a lot of heartache with um, young people I know who've gotten into the law, understand that our systems, our legal systems are bankrupt just as all our other systems are. If you look at the world, we've seen in the pandemic has uncovered how broken our economic systems, our healthcare systems, our environmental systems. It's true with the professions as well. But, but don't be um, starry-eyed. Recognize that the system is broken so you won't be disappointed after you have spent all that time and money going through law school. Get into whether it's government or the law firm or some policy organization say, oh my gosh, really? This is what I spent all my time for? Then you get disillusioned and then you want to leave the law. But now you have a lot of debt. This is what I see a lot of young people struggling with. Have a clear idea of why you want to do what you want to do and keep your eye on the ball once you get in there. So as you get in and you start to see all these evidences of a broken down system, don't be disillusioned because you know why you're doing this and you know what your goal is and how you want to use this degree. And the last thing that I like to suggest to young people is if we want to create new ways of being in the world, one of the best ways of doing it is by going into business for ourselves. So as a young person, if you do want to pursue the law, I would encourage you to then think about setting up uh, your own practice, because that's the best way to demonstrate, to, to break away from the way things are done, have been done traditionally that are breaking down right now. You want to create new systems and you want to demonstrate to others that it's possible for which you need to be in control and at the helm and have the freedom to, 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 to do what you want to do. So those are some few pointers that, that I generally give to, to younger people who um, express an interest in getting involved in law policy or uh, advocacy. Wonderful advice. Thank you for sharing that with us. And before our episode ends for today, do you have any additional words of encouragement or advice you would like to share with our audience? Well, uh, last words. Start before you embark on identifying a career. Start by reflecting on these questions. Who am I? What's my life's purpose? What are my unique abilities and strengths? And what do I want to do with these in service? Um, then having that last question is what do I want to do with this? That's the vision then of what you want to do then plot a plan. 
from where you are to where you want to get, but be flexible because life's going to throw you a lot of curveballs. Nobody's life has ever gone according to plan. And I, I doubt very much whether any of you are going to be the first ones whose life has gone according to plan. So you plan, but as the curveballs come, you're willing to turn on a dime. And we're all getting really good practice this last year and a bit with the pandemic, right? All our plans have been... Um, turned upside down it really doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter how wealthy you are how well educated you are what you know uh, and as again if you're students you know exactly what i mean studying remotely has been really difficult um, and we have to deal with all the other challenges mental health challenges all the other stuff that comes with it and as you, you used the word resilience before we this is all a good opportunity for us to develop um, resilience um, and the last thing I'll say is don't underestimate the power of, and Yara, you've mentioned this several times, perseverance. Another way I would couch it is have the courage of your convictions. Uh, when you do that, then you'll persevere and not give up. Don't underestimate the power of courage, of enthusiasm, and something that we rarely talk about in our society of faith, trusting. And it doesn't mean have to be faith in a religion. I was talking about faith that things will turn out well. Trust the universe. Trust that you're not alone and that some somebody or something is, has got your back and is looking out for you and is actually there to help you as you uh, plot your course in this lifetime. Amazing. Well, Thank you very much, Mrs. Mawani Ewing, for your insight and advice today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. To learn more about Mrs. Mawani Ewing and to check out her work, visit her LinkedIn at Soveda Mawani and follow her on Facebook at Soveda.Ewing. To learn more about CPGG, the work they do, and how you can get involved, visit www.cpgg.org. On this site, you can also find all their social media links. Mrs. Maoni Ewing has been working on a lot of upcoming and currently released projects, including her new weekly video show titled Reimagining Our World, which discusses how we can work towards creating the world we want to see, and the release of her new book, The Alchemy of Peace, Six Essential Shifts in Mindsets and Habits to Achieve World Peace. Would you like to share more about these projects with us? Um, just very briefly. So, so the purpose in uh, with the book, first of all, the alchemy of peace is really to help identify a set of very outworn ways we have of, of um, understanding what's going on in our world. And these mindsets are really holding us back uh, from achieving the kind of world we want, a peaceful world, a safe world, a unified world in which we all get to thrive and fulfill our potential individually and collectively. The book basically identifies the mindsets, the old mindsets, and then what are the old habits that flow from them? Because once you raise them to the light of consciousness, then you can say, ah, they're deserving us. These are, these are really undermining us. And then I propose six new mindsets to replace the old ones, followed by a set of habits that naturally flow from the new mindsets. Um, my goal in writing that book was to create hope because I think one of the biggest dangers facing humanity today is the danger of the loss of hope, of a feeling of helplessness, of being out of control, especially with the pandemic and all the problems it's highlighted, the social justice issues, uh, the global the, uh, economic issues, 
um, poverty, all of these. Um, a, a lot of young people are also getting very disheartened. They're not really sure what their future is going to look like with climate change and so on. But it, this is not the time in human history where we can afford to give up. Now is the time where we need to take action. And to have action, we need to be motivated and have hope. So infusion of hope is my goal with the book and with the video weekly live video series for which the recordings are also available on my YouTube channel, um, which is at the CPGD website, if you scroll to the bottom of the homepage. So infusion of hope is really my goal with the video series. And I'm happy to say it's been very well received so far and you get to participate. I'm interested in creating a dialogue and conversation. I share reflections and ideas, and then you get to jump in and share your, your views and thoughts. And I encourage you to take the ideas and to disseminate them amongst your friends and colleagues so that we get these conversations going. The idea is to get the dialogue going, right? To, to get people to think outside the box. So I think that's it. The book is available on Amazon, wherever in the world you are, your, your Amazon uh, will be carry the alchemy of peace. And go to cpgd.org and scroll to the bottom to my YouTube channel and you can sign up for free, subscribe for free, and you'll get notifications of the weekly episodes and you can look at the past recordings as well. So I think that's it. Wonderful. Like she said, you guys can check out all those links in the description down below of our show. And if you're listening on a podcasting network, check out in the description there. Um, but join Mrs. Maoni Ewing every Saturday at 4 p.m. on Facebook to take part in the live discussions. And as she said, the recordings are available on YouTube. And her book, The Alchemy of Peace, is available on Amazon anywhere. So be sure to check them out. Well, thank you again for your time today, Mrs. Maoni Ewing. And as always, thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe, follow, and like the podcast on its various platforms, including YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts to be notified each time a new episode is posted. If you want to get the latest updates about the show, announcements, submit questions that you would like me to consider to talk about on the show, or join discussions related to the topics we discuss on the show, Follow us on Instagram at spiritof.success, Facebook at spiritof.success9, and our new Facebook group under the Spirit of Success. Until next time, I'm your host, Yara, and don't forget to continue challenging yourself and working to make your spirit soar to new heights. Bye!